Have you ever uh, resisted <clears throat> at some point in your life doing something that you knew that you really should do? You know what I mean? Have you ever, have you ever um, put something off knowing that it was probably what was best for you, but you just didn't feel up to it at the time? But, and then once you finally did it, once you finally took that step, you did whatever that was, you looked back and thought, man, I, I probably should have done that a long time ago. You ever had any of those moments? I sure have. Uh, but that's the way that we are sometimes. I think there are times when we resist what we know is best for our lives. We, we put off and we push back that which we know we should do. In fact, I think we even do that with, with God sometimes. Um, have you ever resisted Jesus Christ in your life? Have you ever pushed back when you knew he was leading you to do something or to say something or maybe even to give something up? You know what I mean? Have you ever resisted his word in your life or refused to follow or fulfill those commands for daily living that are in his word? I'm, I'm certain actually that all of us can say yes to that, particularly when we talk about our lives before we became followers of Jesus Christ <clears throat> because it is the very nature of mankind to put ourselves first and to resist God until he finally calls us to himself. In the, the first three verses of Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So obviously we've all resisted Jesus Christ as unbelievers because our nature gave us no choice until the Father drew us to the Savior of our souls. We read back in John 6, where Jesus said, no one can come to me. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So before our lives in Christ, we all resisted him by our very nature. And yet in Romans chapter 7, Paul describes the ongoing struggle with resisting Jesus by doing what we ought not to do, even as believers and followers of Christ. Romans 7, 21 through 25, he says, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Oh, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is the great Apostle Paul. And so even though he isn't questioning his own salvation here, okay, because our salvation is a product of the sovereign work of a sovereign God, which Paul discusses in detail in Romans 9, meaning that no one can resist God's sovereign work once he wills it to be in this world. Quite frankly, this is a mystery that many people wrestle with, including Paul and the other biblical writers, because by that same sovereign rule, God allows us at times in our lives the freedom to resist him if we choose to. So our freedom, our free will, is ultimately also a result of his sovereignty. <laughs> if you think about that long enough, you'll get a migraine. It's a, it's a mystery that many great scholars 
many better men have wrestled with the marriage between sovereignty and free will, which in uh, theological terms is called compatibilism. But the, the point that I want to make today is that in Romans 7, which we just read, Paul makes it clear that even those who are in Christ have yet to be perfected. And as such, we have the capacity and the ability to continue to sin, to resist what is right for our lives day by day, to disobey his will for us to live righteously, even as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, as Paul describes it in Philippians 2.12. And so there's a type of resistance to God for the unbeliever and another for the believer. However, they both share something in common, which we'll discuss in a moment. But just to give you a firsthand example of what I'm talking about, uh, when Mary Beth and I were married, we almost immediately were brought on staff at a church and we served there uh, for many years faithfully. And some things happened that um, didn't involve us directly or it really wasn't the fault of the leadership of the church, but just some things happened that were very hard on us, very hurtful. And, um, and so we ended up leaving that church. And when we left, I took with me the attitude and the intention that I was done with church ministry. I decided I, I wasn't going to do vocational ministry anymore. And so for about a year, we floated around uh, to different churches. We wouldn't commit to anything. But that entire time, because I, people in South Carolina anyway uh, know me and knew because I've been in this uh, organization for a long time. So they were calling me pastors who were looking for staff pastors saying, hey, I heard you, you aren't serving anywhere. And I was getting these offers to come interview. And as far away as Colorado, people from all over the place, I had a, a church in Colorado call and offer to, to interview me, to fly me out for uh, this missions ministry to take it over. And for a solid year, I didn't even entertain the thought. As soon as they would call, I'd say, thanks, but no thanks. I'm not doing that anymore. I have a business I'm running, and I'm not interested. But that whole time, the Holy Spirit was tugging at me. I knew that I was called and gifted, created, in fact, to not only be in ministry, but vocational ministry. That's just my calling, and I've known that since I was a kid. And so it was gnawing at me because I knew I was resisting Christ and what I was supposed to be doing. And so one day... It finally got to the point where I was ready to yield and I was driving to a job site and I was praying and I remember specifically saying, okay, God, okay. The next person that calls me and asks me for an interview, I promise I'll respond. I'll go interview. And I'm, it's a true story. I, I finished that prayer. Within 60 seconds, I pulled up on the job site and my phone rang. And it was a pastor. And he said, hey, I heard you're available. Uh, you're not serving anywhere could I take you to lunch? And I said, sure. We ended up attending that church, coming on staff um, and, and serving there for several years. I had to relinquish my will to the Father's will. That was close to 20 years ago and we haven't looked back since. The, the point is, there are times in our lives when following Jesus Christ can be harder than at other times, right? There are seasons that we all go through when it can be difficult to relinquish our will in deference to his. In fact, Jesus clearly demonstrates that as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane just before his crucifixion in Luke 22, 42, he said, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. This is what Jesus wants. He said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. 
he had to relinquish his will to the fathers in an unbelievably difficult time in his life. And so today we're going to talk about resisting Jesus Christ at times in our lives. We're going to talk about why we resist him and the reason we don't have to. And this is a really important subject to discuss because, listen, we will never arrive at the place in life where we are becoming and fulfilling all that we could be in him as long as we resist his perfect plan for our lives. And I'm just telling you, I don't ever want to look back more than I have and wonder what could have been. And yet each moment that we resist his voice, his word, his will in our lives is a moment that could have been. So why do we resist? Why do we hold back? Why don't we give him everything? That's what, we're, that's what we're going to explore in our story today as we finish chapter 10 in the gospel according to John with a message titled, No Reason to Fear. Last week we worked our way through the first 21 verses of chapter 10 and so today we'll pick the story up at verse 22 and uh, we'll start out with just the first two verses, 22 and 23. So if you want to turn there with me, we'll have it on the screen as well. John chapter 10 verses 22 and 23. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. <clears throat> now, the Feast of Dedication was a celebration of the victory of the Maccabees over the, the Seleucid ruler Antiochus Epiphanes. We talked about him back in Daniel, if you'll remember, months back. It was also a celebration of the rededication of the Jewish temple in 164 BC, which is tied to the same event. So this was a celebration of something that happened in the intertestamental period. That's the time period between the Old and New Testaments, which is why there's no record or mandate for this feast uh, to be found in the Old Testament. In uh, 167 BC, Antiochus overran Jerusalem and he defiled the temple in the worst ways, which began a reign of terror on the Jews for the next three years. He stole millions in gold and silver from the temple treasury. He made even possessing a copy of God's law punishable by death. He made circumcising a child punishable by death. In fact, if a mother was caught circumcising her child, she was to be crucified with the child hanging around her neck. He made the temple a house of prostitution, the altar of burnt offering, an altar to the Greek god Zeus. He had pigs sacrificed on that same altar, and ultimately under Antiochus's rule, 80,000 Jews were killed and as many sold as slaves. And then came the Maccabees, and these were tough dudes. And so these guys, this family, along with many more Jews, and their last name actually wasn't Maccabee. Um, the Jews called them that because that was the Hebrew word for hammer. So they called them the hammers. And they gathered the Jews and they fine-tuned the art of guerrilla warfare. And by force, they were able to take back the temple and rededicate it to the Lord. And so there's this great celebration that happened when they took the temple back. It lasted for eight days, which then became an annual feast called the Feast of Dedication, which later became known as the uh, Feast of Lights because the Jews would light candles and lamps uh, in their homes to commemorate the event. And it's still celebrated today. It's what we know of as Hanukkah. You can read more about that in the book of 1 Maccabees. It's uh, one of the books that were written in that 400-year intertestamental period of time between the Old and New Testament. So 
All of this not only gives us an historical backdrop for this feast, but it's actually quite relevant information to the rest of the story uh, today, as we'll see. As well, uh, these two verses describe Jesus walking in the colonnade of Solomon, or Solomon's porch, which was a covered structure. It was about 200 yards long on the east side of the temple, and it offered uh, some protection from the, the biting easterly winds of winter. And incidentally, this is the same place that the early Jerusalem church would gather as it was forming and meeting together to worship together. But, but here we find Jesus in this covered area rather than out in the open court where he would normally be because it offered some protection from the cold. And then he's confronted by this angry group of Jews. Let's keep reading. Verses 24 through 30. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So Jesus is surrounded by a group of Jews who are demanding that he clarify once and for all if he is in fact the Christ. And at first glance, this could be taken as a sincere attempt by well-meaning Jews who genuinely wish to ascertain whether or not Jesus is the Messiah so that they can worship him, if he is. But we know that's actually not the case here because when you read this question, their question to Jesus, how long will you keep us in suspense? When you read that in the original Greek language, you can translate it as, how long are you going to annoy us? So there's a, a strong negative connotation to their question. In other words, they're not nearly as interested in the truth as they are in obtaining an unambiguous statement by Jesus that might provide some basis for their plans to get rid of him. They want to implicate him, right? So Jesus responds with, look, you have all the answers that you need. Just look at the works that I've done in my Father's name. What, what more proof do you need to know who I am? And of course, Jesus already knows what's in their hearts. So he then explains the real reason that they're questioning him by echoing his statements in the first half of this chapter, which we looked at last week. He says, you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. So Jesus knows they're not after the truth. In fact, what they're doing is actively resisting the truth. They don't want to know if Jesus is the Messiah. They don't want to hear what is right, what's best, what's true. They're resisting all of that. And then Jesus makes a declaration that I believe is the centerpiece, the definitive statement upon which this entire narrative rests. Because in the balance of what he says here hangs a truth that has the potential to completely define the way that we live the rest of our lives. It's a truth that carries with it the possibility of eliminating the uh, what could have been moments for the remainder of our lives on earth. Those moments that we often look back on with regret. This statement by Jesus really should altogether change our view of what it means to belong to him. And so we're going to come back to it in just a moment. How's that for a buildup? Let's finish reading the story for today, though. Verse 31 to the end of the chapter. It says, The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. 
Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father, but which of them are you going, uh, for them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself God. And Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I'm the son of God. If I'm not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. So again, Jesus simply speaks the truth, and again the Jews resist the truth and begin picking up stones to kill him. And Jesus responds by saying, is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him who the father consecrated and sent into the world, you're blaspheming because I said, I'm the son of God. Now, Jesus is quoting the 82nd Psalm here. The 82nd Psalm is a lament about unjust human rulers or judges who are referred to legitimately in the scriptures as gods with a little g because these were men who were tasked with speaking or acting in the creator God's name. They were, they were supposed to be the creator God's representatives on the earth with a divine prerogative to exercise his judgment. And yet they're accused in Psalm 82 as judging unjustly, as showing partiality to the wicked, of failing to rescue the weak and the needy. In short, these are the hirelings right? The, the thieves and robbers. These are the inauthentic under shepherds that Jesus was describing in the first half of the chapter that we looked at last week. And so Jesus says, look, if these unjust rulers, these men who give preference to the wicked and neglect the needy, if they can rightly be referred to as gods simply because of their position given to them in Jewish society, then surely it is acceptable for the son of God to refer to himself as such. And that sends them over the edge because you can only argue against the truth. You can only resist the truth for so long before you run out of arguments. And so instead of accepting the truth, instead of uh, accepting Jesus as the Christ, they lash out at him, which by the way is exactly what people who resist him over and over and over again today do. They do the very same thing. Eventually they run out of arguments and so they become hostile in their resistance toward God. I was watching a, a debate that had been recorded, and it was actually from several years ago, so it wasn't recent. And the debate was between theism and atheism. So anyone who believes that there is a God, whether the Christian God or not, would be considered a theist. If you believe there is no God, you're considered an atheist. And this was at a, a university, a well-known university, moderated by two well-known men. And they had these two guys debating. And they would ask a question about, um, do you believe that nature and science and so on um, points more toward theism or atheism? And the theist would give 
a very clear, well-thought-out response, and they would give them several minutes to respond, eight or ten minutes to these questions. And then the, the, the atheist would take his turn. And they went back and forth like this. It's quite a long, it's over an hour, this whole uh, debate. And the atheist continually, consistently, wouldn't answer the questions. He would instead begin to lash out at Jesus Christ and to the point that he was cursing and saying all kinds of vile things in this debate at this university about Jesus Christ. And the theist kept saying, listen, if you want to debate the merits of Christianity, we can do that. But I was under the impression that's not what we're here to talk about, right? A Muslim is a theist. A, a Jew is a theist. There are lots of theists that aren't Christians. But this atheist, and he's a well-known atheist uh, scholar, kept turning back and, and lashing out against Jesus Christ to the point that he finally turned to the theist. And I didn't know the theist that was in the debate. Never heard of him before. And he said, are you, in fact, a born-again Christian? And the theist said, yes, I am. And he said, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God? He said, yes, I do. He said, do you believe that he uh, died, was born of a virgin birth and died and rose again three days later? He said, yes, I do. And now he ascended to the throne room of heaven and he is sitting at the right hand of God. And he said, that's right. And the man <laughs> just came uncorked and began to go off on Jesus Christ and Christianity. And the, the, the Christians just said, what do you, this isn't what we came to talk about, but we can discuss this if we want. The point is, the atheist completely ran out of arguments. And so he began to lash out at Jesus Christ because he couldn't make a solid argument for his position. It became obvious that he was bent on lashing out at Jesus once he ran out of anything else to say. And I wonder why. Why do people resist Jesus Christ so much? Well, the answer to that question is the same for us today as it was for these guys in the first century who were resisting Jesus then. The answer is it's fear. You see, they claim in verse 33 that the reason they're resisting Jesus and the reason they want to kill him is because of blasphemy. In other words, their claim is that they are defending the honor of their God. But we know nothing could be further from the truth because Jesus has already repeatedly explained in this gospel that their true father is the devil. So they're not resisting Jesus because they want to defend truth. The reason they're resisting him is because they're afraid. Now look, fear is typically a response to some perceived loss. When we're afraid, it usually has to do with a perception that we may lose something. Think about it. When, when you're afraid, we, we fear the loss of our health, right? We, we fear the loss of life. We fear the loss of a relationship, the loss of our popularity, the loss of uh, control, the loss of position, the loss of influence, the loss of our job, the loss of our belongings. You can go on and on, right? Fear most often has to do with some kind of perceived loss, which is exactly what we see with the Jews in this story. In fact, they, they say as much later in chapter 11, which we'll see in the next couple of weeks, verses 47 and 48, right after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, 
you'd think that these men who are supposed to be shepherding God's people, these religious leaders who would be overjoyed to hear that Jesus has just raised one of their own sheep from the dead. But all they could do was fret over what they thought they might lose. Right after Jesus raises Lazarus, John says, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. You see, it's about a perceived loss. They're afraid of losing their position and their power and their influence and their popularity, their authority over the people. And so they become hostile toward Jesus because they want to annihilate what they perceive to be the source of their fear. That leads us to the brilliance, the truly profound nature of the earlier statement by Jesus in verses 27 and 28, where he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I will give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now keep in mind, this part of the story is happening during the Feast of Dedication. And so ever present in the minds of the Jewish people is the violent tearing away of them of the temple by force from them. And of course, the retaking of the temple by force from the Seleucid dynasty. And as we know, uh, they're currently at the time of this story living forcefully under Roman occupation and rule. So for the Jews, this idea of getting what you want was intimately associated with the concept of taking it by force, and particularly at this time during the Feast of Dedication. And Jesus always keen to choose his words so as to have their greatest effect, was constantly keying in on whatever happened to be going on in the culture at the time when he would teach. In fact, we've seen that uh, so far all the way through this gospel account. He talked about being the shepherd to the sheep in chapter 10 to a culture that was entirely familiar with sheep herding. He talked about being the light of the world as he healed a blind man in chapter 9. He talked about being the source of living water on the last day of the Feast of Booths, which was the day when they stopped pouring out the water on the altar in chapter 7. He talked about being the bread of life in chapter 6 as the people he fed miraculously the day before came after him again, hungry and searching for more food. We can just keep going on here. The, the point is Jesus routinely tailored his teachings to whatever happened to be on the hearts and minds of the people at the time. And so knowing the fear of losing what you hold most dear by force, knowing that was so strong among these Jews who had experienced that throughout their history, and particularly as they remembered the taking of the temple during this feast, Jesus makes this statement where he refers to those who belong to him those who have stopped resisting him as those who no one will snatch out of my hand. And interestingly enough, that phrase will snatch in the ancient Greek is the word harpazo, which literally means to take by force. I just don't believe that his choice of words here was a coincidence. It's as if he was saying no one can do to my sheep what has been done to the sheep of Israel over and over again by the Seleucids, by the hirelings, by the thieves, by the robbers, by their enemies throughout their history. Right? He's saying to them, the one thing that you fear the most, 
loss is the very thing that you never have to fear when you belong to me. And as we see at the end of the chapter, some got it and others didn't. Some of them finally stopped resisting him. And so the question is, why do we, why do we resist him? It's because of fear. Fear of what we may have to give up if we follow him wholeheartedly. Fear of losing our, our status. Fear of losing our standard of living. Fear of losing respect. Fear of where he may actually lead us. Fear of having to humble ourselves. A fear of losing control over everything that we've been trying to control. A fear of what life might actually look like if we spent it living for someone other than ourselves first. You can fill in your own blanks here. But at the end of the day, the reason we resist him, his leading, his word, his guidance, his truth, his direction in our lives, the reason that we resist him is because we're afraid of what we might lose. And so knowing that about us, he offers the most amazing revelation, the most incredible answer to the fear of loss for those who belong to him. He says, you don't have to resist me because there's nothing to fear. When you belong to me, there's nothing that can take you away from me. Nothing can snatch you out of my hand. There is no sickness, there is no pain, there is no struggle, there is no rejection, there's no ridicule, there is no lack, there's no inability, there's no misunderstanding, there's no confusion, there is no fight or any force in the heavens or on this earth that can ever, ever take you away from me. You have nothing to fear. And yet we resist him precisely because we're afraid. So how do we live without fear? Well, the answer is simple. It means no more resistance to Christ. John teaches us that there's no fear in love. But perfect love, he says, casts out fear, 1 John 4.18. He also teaches us that God is love in 1 John 4.8. So perfect love, the love that casts out fear, is found in Christ alone, which means the absence of fear is also found in Christ alone. So living without fear is directly related to our proximity to Christ because he is perfect love, and perfect love casts out fear. And so when we resist him, listen, when we resist Jesus, we actually create space in our lives where fear can thrive. Yet the very thing that we fear the most, loss, is the very thing that we need not fear when we're in Christ. Why? Because no one can snatch us out of his hand. You see, when we resist him, we're actually we're producing the opposite result that we seek. On the contrary, when we draw near to him, he draws near to us. And that is the one place where fear cannot exist. So let's just consider for a moment what would life look like if we stopped resisting Jesus Christ? What would life look like living without fear? Well, I think we would make decisions differently. 
I think we would approach people differently. I think we would handle situations differently if we lived without fear. In fact, I believe our lives would be profoundly different in the absence of fear. But that means no more resistance to Christ. It means we say yes to him, to his leading. It means not putting off that which we know we're supposed to do. It means giving where he says to give, going where he says to go, doing what he says to do. It means helping those who he tells us to help, leaving what he tells us to leave and embracing that which he has called us to without fear of what we might have to give up. It means no more resistance to Christ. The Reverend R. Gregory once wrote in a sermon, whence is it that the busy occupations of life buying and selling and seeking to get gain, are made so absorbing whilst we feel that calls to devotion and to works of charity can be so easily set aside. It is because in our hearts we regard the world as more solid and substantial than the gospel because we've not comprehended what is meant by our communion with Christ as God. Whence is it that men are so overwhelmed by sorrow, loss of friends, shipwreck of fortune, and feeble health? It is because they have not really learned that it is God's providence which rules the world, that Christ our God orders all things according to the counsels of his will, and that by loving submission all may be made to minister to their everlasting happiness. Just think about how our lives would be different if we no longer worried about what we might lose in this life in light of what we stand to gain in eternity by removing all resistance to Jesus Christ in the here and now. I'll say that again. You think about that. How would our lives be different if we no longer worried about what we might lose in this life in light of what we stand to gain in eternity by removing all resistance to Jesus Christ in the here and now. The truth is we can live powerful lives, effective lives. In fact, we can live world-changing lives when we realize that we have nothing to fear once we stop resisting him. Because no matter what comes our way, no matter what it is, we are completely secure in him. He said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one can snatch them out of my hand. We have nothing to fear when we're in Christ Jesus. We have nothing to fear when we stop resisting him. We have nothing to fear by drawing near to him because it is in that very moment that he draws near to us and he whispers into our hearts, I've got you. I've got you. It's okay. No one can snatch you away from me now because I'm with you. There's nothing to fear. Let's pray.